James chapter 2. Hear the word of the Lord as I read. Verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scriptures was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the works is dead. Let's take a moment and prepare our hearts to hear what God has for us this morning. Father, we come before you and your scripture, your words, your very words, and we're going to ask you this morning to help us to understand what we hear. Father, we're going to ask you to help us believe what we understand. And Father, we're going to ask you to help us obey what we believe. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, this passage, if you have not picked up, and maybe for you or if you're new uh, to the church in general, this passage is one of those passages in the Bible that has an apparent contradiction with other parts of the Bible, particularly the writings of Paul. And so many people, many uninitiated or even initiated into the church, have struggled with this text because of the apparent contradiction. You see, the reformers who were leaning against this idea of salvation by works tended to rely heavily upon Paul and his writings to refute that kind of thinking, that if you bought enough indulgences, if you went to enough confessionals, if you had done enough works, then you were guaranteed salvation or, or maybe a loved one who had died before they could uh, get the, uh, the works that were necessary for salvation. And so in, in leaning against that, the Reformation came along and made a statement, a motto even, that clearly articulated Paul's writings about our salvation from that particular perspective. And so it was this, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, 
to the glory of God alone. There are a number of what's called solas in there that is aloneness that, that articulated that there was nothing on our part that earned salvation or got us a favor or pleasure of God. And, and, and so that particular statement, that creed, that, that a motto became a way to shorthand Paul's teaching on salvation. But then you come to James, and particularly this passage, this text, where it clearly says that we are justified by our works. Or another way that James puts it is that he says, faith without works is dead. And so in light of that, people have said that's an apparent contradiction in Scripture. The way that Martin Luther, another reformer, began to say, no, 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 this is too perspectives on the same thing. It's not a contradiction. It's just two ways to look at it. And so the way that Martin Luther would drive this together, he would say, we are saved by faith alone, but saving faith is never alone. What he means by that is he agrees with Paul that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone. But If that truly is how we are saved, then it never comes alone. That is, that it's always accompanied by evidences of that faith. That if we have living, true faith, genuine faith, then it is evidenced through a transformed life. And that's Paul's, I mean, James's point all through this letter. James is presuming that you agree with Paul about how someone is saved. And therefore, James is emphasizing the other half of salvation, that it transforms us, that it doesn't just come and sit, that it explodes in the life of the believer and changes everything about the believer over a long period of time. And and so James is focusing upon what's called sanctification by faith, while Paul primarily was concerned with justification by faith. And even though James is using the word justified, he's using it the way the Bible did when Paul says, you were justified, you are being justified, and you will be justified. That is, that justification has a past tense, which Christ did on the cross for us. It has a present tense, what God is doing through the work of the spirit in us through this gospel. And then ultimately, as we are completely transformed into the image of Christ in the future, when Christ returns, that's a lot. I understand that. But, but the difference of these two perspectives is important because if you emphasize one over the other, you miss the totality of the impact of the gospel. Even Paul recognizes this because some of the very favorite verses of us reformed people is Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. Why? So that no one can boast. No one can claim they had a part that God owed them, that God must give them salvation because they did something to favor that. Paul's leaning against that. But what we reformers don't do is that we don't often quote 2.10, the very next verse. And in the original language, there's no punctuation. It goes right from verse 9 right into verse 10. 
because they're meant to be linked together always. In verse 10 says, you who I just talked about in verses eight and nine are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand for you to do. You see, even Paul recognizes that justification past tense has a present tense effect, which we tend to call sanctification, that process where we are becoming more like Christ, where we say no to sin and yes to God. He's recognizing that to the point where in Galatians, when Paul gets to this idea, he says this, he says, the only thing that counts is faith. We agree with that, Paul. Yes, faith alone. But then he says, that is expressed itself through love. Paul weds those two ideas. And so Paul and James are not disagreeing with one another. They're just emphasizing two parts of our salvation. And so in our text today, James is, is communicating to us that believing something, believing even the Bible is not enough. And I know that makes us a little uncomfortable, but it's okay to be a little comfortable for a little while. By the time you leave out of here, I hope you're more comfortable. But right now you're going to feel this angst because James wants you to feel this angst. He wants you to feel a little conflicted here because James wants you to understand it is if a creed is all that is necessary for salvation, then you don't have enough for salvation. Let me quote another theologian from the Midwest, Garrison Keeler. Garrison says, sitting in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. Now you've heard that, so let me change it just a little bit for James and what we're talking about. Believing every word in the Bible doesn't make you a Christian any more than believing every word in your car's manual makes you a car. That is, you can believe every word that's written in the scriptures and still not be a follower of Jesus, not have received your salvation. How's that possible? What does James say? James says in verse 19, even the demons believe and they shudder. That is, if you are a follower of Jesus, if you are a regular attender of the church, that does not make you a Christian anymore than sitting in your garage makes you a car. That is, believing the Bible, that's a good thing. But that's not salvation. Because even the demons believe. In fact, they believe every word. Because what does he do in that same section? He says, you believe God is one, and that is good. That's a, that's a good thing. What is he quoting? Typically in the Bible, when you want to quote a whole section of the Bible, you often refer to just the beginning of of what you're quoting. And then the, the rest of it is implied. And he's doing that here. When he says God is one, he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, which is called the Shema, which every Jew used for orthodoxy. That is, if you met another person on the street and they claim to be a follower of God, you ask them, do you believe the Shema? Can you recite the Shema? Which in Deuteronomy 6 begins with, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was a testament, a creed, a confession 
of orthodoxy. For 20 years, one of my roles in Presbytery that people would often ask that I do is to serve as the chairman of what we called our credentials committee, which some can call our orthodox committee. That is, we would take these candidates for ministry and they would apply to come into our presbytery to do ministry in churches and sometimes in outside of a local church, but on behalf of our presbytery, and they would stand for an exam. And what we would examine them in was their orthodoxy. Are you orthodox enough to be part of our group? That's what the Shema is for the Old Testament. It is a confession that they would determine, are you one of us or you're not? Are you, are you a follower of God or not? Are you a believer or not? That is, not just simply could you quote it, but do you believe it? And James is saying, by quoting the Shema here, the beginning of the Shema, which, is the whole, which implies the whole thing, is that even demons can quote the Shema. Even demons believe the, the Shema. The demons are orthodox beings. How do we know that? John, in John 8, Jesus has a conversation with religious leaders. In fact, they've come to rebuke him by announcing, hey, you new rabbi, you young guy, you whippersnapper, we are the children of Abraham. You remember what Jesus' response in John 8 is? You're not the children of Abraham. If you were the children of Abraham, you would do the works of Abraham. Little rebuke there. You know what their response was to Jesus when he said, you're not the children of Abraham. They do what everybody in this room does. What I do when, when my argument seems a little weak, I double down on the argument. Instead of saying we're the children of Abraham, because obviously we're, we're not doing the works of Abraham. They're not debating whether they're doing the works of Abraham. They're willing to admit they're not doing the works of Abraham. So they say, well, we're just going to ratchet it up here. We're not children of Abraham. We're the children of God. You know what Jesus' response to that is? The devil is your father. James is saying that expressions of faith can be cultural, but not biblical. That is, you could have a cultural faith in the things of God. You could grow up in a culture that goes to church. You could grow up in a culture that gives. You could grow up in a a culture that serves. You could grow up in a culture that can confess our confessions, but really not have a biblical, genuine faith, saving faith. The way that Jonathan Edwards would answer this, this is way back in the early part of the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards wrote a little pamphlet, and in the pamphlet he had the coolest of titles. He called it, True Grace Distinguished from Devils. We don't have cool titles like that. When we do a a message, it's so contemporary, we miss. Man, I want to know what he's thinking about devils. He's distinguishing the difference between saving faith, real Christianity, and what the devils believe. And he says there's two aspects or two parts or two things that every demon has that every Christian has. That is, there's no difference. In these two ways. And then there's a third way that only Christians have. So two ways in which demons are like Christians. They both believe in the sound doctrine. They're both orthodox in their faith. It's not like you've got demons over here that are heretics and Christians over here who are faithful. Both have orthodox faith or orthodox beliefs. But then, he says, not only do devils and Christians have this in common, orthodoxy, 
They also both respect the power of God. They're both respecters that God can do what he says he will do, that God can uh, fulfill whatever his promise is. How do we know that? What does James say? They believe and they shudder. Why do they shudder? The problem with devils is not that they don't believe God. It's that they do. And, and they shudder. It is because that they are orthodox, that they are terrified of God. Because he can promise and do what he promises. Sound doctrine and respecting the power of God is not evidence of faith, not saving faith. So what's saving faith? If saving faith is something other than orthodoxy and something other than respecting the power of God, what is it? And that's where Jonathan Edwards says there's this third thing that they don't have in common. And that is submission. Trust. Not my will, but thy will be done. Demons don't do that. They, they believe what we believe. They even respect that God can do what he says he'll do. But the difference is it changes nothing about them. No life transformation. Nothing evidences that what they believe has changed anything about the way in which they operate their lives. Often in, in Jesus' day, when... Uh, when a new rabbi came on to, to the scene, the orthodox, the way that they would do uh, a, an orthodox exam, a credentialing exam of the new rabbi, is they would often ask this question. Actually, they would ask two questions, but I'm only going to look at the second one. The first question they would ask is, where's your authority? Who gives you your authority? Who's your teacher? <laughs> who is your rabbi? And then by telling them who your rabbi is, they, they would know everything that you know, everything that you would teach based on a previous rabbi. And there's plenty of passages in the New Testament that talk about that. But the question on the house today is that they would go up to Jesus and they would say, hey, Jesus, you're a new rabbi. Tell us what is the greatest commandment in the Bible? There are 617 and we need to reduce those because we can't do all 607. They're recognizing that 617 commands cannot be kept perfectly by a human being. And so they're asking the question, what's the greatest? Because if we can do the greatest commandment, then maybe this is a manageable religion we have. Maybe we can get through this and get real genuine faith. And so Jesus says the first commandment, and this is the first thing answering your question of what is saving faith. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. That's the first great command. And what he's doing is he's taking the 617 commands and he's going to divide them into two parts. And he's going to say the first part of it is love God with everything about your being, everything about you. What he's saying is a love for God presupposes or creates a desire to obey God. He's not saying it the other way. An obedience to God is a love for God. He's saying, if you love God, it creates in you a desire to obey God. Because we know this, we don't always want to. You ever seen that child who you say, you need to do this. And the child says, you're not the boss of me. What's the child saying? I don't want to. I don't want to do that. 
true salvation, genuine faith, real faith, is not wanting to, but wanting to want to. Because people who do not love God do not want to want to love God and follow and obey him. I can't promise that you as a Christian will always want to follow God. Because the definition of sin is to want to do what you want to do apart from God. But at least, do you want to want to? That's evidence of faith, real, genuine faith. The want to want to follow God. The example that James gives us here is Abraham. And he says, look at Abraham. He's justified by his works. What's he talking about? He's talking about that point in time where, where, where Abraham, after all the promises that his name, which was father, which was embarrassing, to father of many peoples and not having children, to finally get a child named Isaac. And then, the, and then God comes to him and says, Isaac, I, I want you to demonstrate to me your faith. I want you to show me that you trust me. Absolutely, without qualification, without mitigating. I want you to take your son that whom you love and I want you to take him up this dark, terrible, scary mountain and I want you to take a knife with you. I want you to sacrifice him to me to show me you have no other gods other than me. And the story goes that Abraham takes his son Isaac and they begin to walk up the mountain. Isaac's literally carrying the wood on his back that would be used for a sacrifice. And all the while, Abraham's saying to himself, man, I trust God, but I hope he gives me a way out of this mess. I hope he can provide an alternative to this death. And even Isaac, where are we going? What are we going to do? What's he saying? Man, we're going to trust God. He's going to provide a substitute. Either he's going to give us a substitute, he's going to raise you from the dead because I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to follow God. And it might mean your death, but if you die, he's going to do one or two things. Either he's going to raise you from the dead or he's going to provide us a substitute in your place. The truth is, God never planned for Abraham to kill his son. Why? Because he always planned to kill his own son. The reason he decided not, Abraham, I just want you to show me that you trust me. You know, that's the reason a lot of difficulties and sufferings come into our lives. It's not just so that we can have victory over hard things. And it's not that God is, is wanting us to suffer, but simply to demonstrate that this faith, this creed that we often announce that we believe is true. That God, I want to want to. Okay, well, show me. I want you to take this job you hate. I want you to live in this community that you want to leave. I want you to be friends with these people who who you don't want to be friends with. I want you to go to this church that you don't want to go to. I want you to have the car that keeps falling apart on you. I want you to have this hard life because I want to be the only God in your life. I don't want you to put a place or a thing, or a person above me. And I want you to demonstrate that. And I want you to demonstrate that through your life. Love is always submitting to someone else's desire. Let me give you a free marriage seminar. 
I would do, go on the road and charge $1,000 for this if it wasn't going to take but a minute. Nobody's going to think it's worth anything. But here is marriage advice 101. If you don't hear any other marriage advice, hear this one. When you marry somebody, this is what you're saying. Not my will, but your will be done. And not sometimes, but always. It's a covenant. It's a promise. And, and the husband's saying, well, that's exactly what my wife did. You missed it. Go to Ephesians 5. You're being compared to Christ. And what, how did Christ demonstrate his own love for the bride and for his father? But to give up his own life. And his own desire not to die on the cross. Now, the reason we won't pay for that is we don't want to. We don't maybe even want to want to. And that's why so many of our marriages struggle. Is because we don't even want to want to. Say to the other person, not my will, but your will be done. Not my desires, but yours. If everybody did that in marriage then marriage would be radically transformed. This is exactly what Jesus did. He's going to go under his father's knife on a dark mountain called Golgotha, and there he's going to say, not my will, but thy will be done, and die for us. So the first evidence of a saving faith is that you love God with all your heart and all your soul, all your strength and all your mind. And then Jesus says the second commandment is like the first. He's not saying that I'm going to describe and therefore as long as you keep one and not the other, you're okay. He says it's like the first. They're they're equal. That is, you can't love God with one breath and not love people with the other. And the way that James puts it is you can't love God and curse people in the same mouth. And we do that all the time. And so the second evidence of saving faith is that you love people. And the way that Jesus dealt with that, and James talked about it last, when we looked at the text last week, he says, love your neighbor. And immediately the Pharisees wanted to to manage this and say, well, okay, I'll love my neighbor. I know that's in the scriptures. I know that's in the Old Testament. I know that's in the New Testament. We'll love, but please narrow that field down for me. Who's my neighbor? And what they're thinking of is people that I already like. I'm already in lifestyle with. I will, I will serve them. I will sacrifice for the people that I love. And, and Jesus' example, he gives a parable. He gives a story. And he says, well, loving your neighbors like this. Man goes on the road and he meets some robbers and they leave him for half dead. And two religious guys walk by and they ignore them because if if they step down and they get a little blood on them or they touch him and God forbid they're dead, then they can't go to worship. So they pass by and go on to church. Meanwhile, this guy is dying. And so who comes to his aid? Who's the hero of this story? You say, well, Samaritan, but we in the 21st century don't recognize what this means because generally we don't have hate for a, for a a whole group of people. The Samaritans are the half breeds, the outsiders, the moral outcast of the Jews. And therefore a Jew, when he says a Samaritan, he's talking about his enemy. And so what Jesus is saying 
To love your neighbor means to love your enemy. That is not comfortable. Because if the standard is to love my friends, I got it. But to love people that are hard to love, people that I don't particularly like, who are not like me, I can't love them. I'm not even sure I want to want to. And so James is saying by these examples, whether it's the poor man or Abraham or Rahab, you got to love them. Abraham is a bad husband by anybody's definition. If a man walked in here and said, I gave my wife away to save my life, to save my skin twice, I said, take her. We would think he's a bad husband. There's nobody in this room who, who would think a good husband gives his wife away to save his life. Prostitute. She's not just any prostitute. Rahab is a Gentile, so she is an ethnic outcast. She's a, a woman, therefore she is a gender outcast. And she's a prostitute, so she's a moral outcast. She's got a triple decker. If you've got any reason to reject Rahab, it's because she doesn't fall into any of our classes of someone that we ought to show any mercy. So James is telling us here by using Rahab as our example, is using this poor man who smells, who's poorly dressed, and Abraham is to say, don't you dare close your borders of your heart. Even if our nation closes its borders, we are not to close our borders of our heart. You know, over on the right-hand corner, I have this text your questions. I sometimes get comments all comments are welcome. Not all treated the same. <laughs> but one of the comments that I got from last week is that I was being a little too political by talking about immigrants and same-sex attraction and the poor. And though I was a political science major and am apt to be political, I was not trying to be political by saying that no matter what your immigration policy is, whether you support the current trend toward closing borders or at least restricting them, or wide open, I'm not arguing that point. The church is not involved in that discussion. You as a Christian, particularly those of you who are in policy and politics, you have to deal with that. We as a church, we have to deal with the effects that we have nearly 12 million immigrants in our land. And we are required in order to show our genuine faith, love and hospitality to the immigrants that are here, regardless of how they got here, regardless of what our government ultimately might do to them, or about them, we have to show hospitality because, not because I say so, but because the scripture says you are an alien and stranger in this land. You say, no, I was born here. The Bible says, yes, you are an American citizen, maybe, but you are an alien and stranger in that kingdom because that kingdom is not my kingdom. You are a citizen in God's kingdom, and that makes you an alien and stranger in yours. And I treated you with hospitality. 
And therefore you are too, because it's a demonstration of genuine faith. It's evidence that there's been a transformation by what you believe. And that's true about the poor. And it's true about uh, women. It's true about race. You just go on and on, which I did last week and evidently a little too much. (laughs) All right. I understand this is scandalous. Sometimes we preachers, we like to be a little scandalous. But I wasn't the original preacher here. James was. And he's being scandalous about the kind of love he's talking about. Whoever claims, James is saying, faith in Jesus must walk like Jesus. What he did, we're supposed to do. If he welcomed us, we are to welcome. We are not to close our borders of our heart. This is scandalous love because he gives two incredible examples, actually three examples, and I'll get to the third. But one of them is this this bad husband and the other one is the prostitute because James is pushing on us that cultural Christianity is not genuine faith. Sitting in a pew does not make you a Christian. Generosity doesn't make you a Christian. Evidence that of genuine faith is a welcoming arms of Jesus in a scandalous way. How so? By who you welcome. Pimps and prostitutes, addicts and drunks, people that we would be offended and have been offended by. James says, as you become a Christian, you're one of them. That's why it's so radical. Do you remember the party that Jesus goes to in, in Luke 7? I want to make sure I... Ooh, already gone over. I'll skip the, the party. It's a really cool party because the bo- <laughs> Jesus goes and a prostitute serves him. And one of the cool things that Jesus says at the end is, I've never seen a faith like this. And one of the things that he's showing there is that the stench of her sin is not being asked to be removed before she comes and serves and loves. You and I are not required to have a cleanup on aisle five before they join the church because we believe that people belong before they believe. And people don't behave until they believe. The, the, the last example he gives, and this is the poor guy, he's poorly clothed, He's dismissed with politeness. He smells a little bit because he's wearing clothes that that, uh, have been around for a while and probably haven't been washed, especially in that generation, I mean, that time. He might even have been a smoker and, and, and so the stench of cigarettes are on him, a little alcohol on his breath. And what do you do? He says, don't pray, be warm and be filled. But if you don't meet his need, his bodily needs, then you're not evidencing genuine faith. Nothing is transformed about your heart. Last week we said this. We said that C.S. Lewis taught us that we have never met a mere mortal, no matter what they're struggling with in life. This week, and I don't know who the author is, it's anonymous. I tried this week to find out who said this, but I really like it. We need to be kind to everyone because everyone you meet, everyone I meet, is fighting a hard battle. If we just get our minds around those two things, there are no mere mortals and everyone struggles, 
then we're on a level playing field. And let me say to those of you who have struggled with heroin or struggled with drugs or or struggled with alcohol, if you've traded those for smoking cigarettes and cussing, you've traded up. And we ought to celebrate that. Sometimes we think a complete transformation is what is necessary to be welcomed. And that's not how it works. It's not how it works with your sanctification and it's not how it works with theirs. How in the world could James do this to us? How could James take this beautiful, genuine, confessional faith that we have and turn it into all these evidences, these works? Because he has experienced humility on his own part. How can James take our beautiful faith and put them in these terms? It is because James himself was brought low. Do you remember... James, half-brother. You know, I don't know about in your family. I was this kid growing up. Couldn't you be more like Bruce? It was a terrible thing to say to my siblings, particularly since I'm not the oldest and not that particularly good. Maybe that's you, that was you or you were compared to one of your siblings. Could you not be more like... Can you imagine growing up in Jesus's house? Literally, James, can you be more like Jesus? I'm sure James is completely embarrassed by his brother, not only by his beautiful, perfect behavior, but the things he was going around town saying, hey, I'm the son of God. (laughs) Come listen to me. I'm the Messiah y'all been all looking for. And mom, not only was mom and dad not married, but I was immaculately conceived. Can you imagine how embarrassed James was of his brother? God is so patient to James. He waits till after the death of his brother and gives him a special one-time showing. We know that in 1 Corinthians. Paul says that, that Jesus appeared over 40 days to 500 people and to James. Why would God do that? It's been rough for James. James said Jesus was not who he said he was. In fact, he said he was crazy like his mom said. Let's bring him home because this is embarrassing to the family. And then he finds out he really is the son of God. I mean, it's one thing if if your brother claims to be the son of God and it turns out he's not. But can you imagine your brother who claims to be the son of God turns out to be the son of God? And you were wrong? What a beautiful picture of redemption in James. So much so that God had planned for James to become the leader, the pastor of the first church that was growing by leaps and bounds and acts. He said, James, you're not ready yet. You'll be ready when you see Jesus because you're going to know our Redeemer lives. James is not showing pity on Abraham or Rahab or this poor man. He's showing solidarity. He's not saying... Church, you've got it together. Now show the world you've got it together by ministering to those people who are less fortunate than you. That would miss the point. The point of treating poor people equal to you who are wealthy. The reason for welcoming arms to the gay community. The reason why we want to help immigrants find their way in our world. It's not because we are better than them and they need us. It's because they are us. And therefore, 
He has been brought low. And so the natural question, have you been brought low? Because if you've been brought low, it enables you to befriend the bad husbands, the hookers, the poor guy. Have you seen yourself on that level? Because it's one thing to see yourself on that level, but it's another one to be on that level. And that's where we are. What does the world need? The world needs less posers masquerading as ministers. I'm the guilty one. The same good news that God gives to junkies and cursing moms and sexually broken people is the same gospel for pastors, youth workers, and worship leaders. God has provided a way out of the death. Jesus Christ, the substitute, and that empowers you to say, not my will, but thy will be done. Even if that means I have to befriend the people that I don't normally associate with. I have to serve in ways that I don't want to serve, that expose me to risk, that expose me to unsafety. I, I think that's something we as a church are really struggling with right now. Are we going to expose ourselves to risk for the sake of the gospel? I don't have the answer to that question, but I know we are wrestling with that question. Faith without works is dead. James is saying faith without evidence of genuine faith is no faith at all. The evidence of our faith is that we want to say to our Heavenly Father, I don't want to. And sometimes I don't feel like you're the boss of me. But I want to want to. Help me with my unbelief. And to say to all the people who, are, who, who we don't normally relate to, who, who we don't see as our equals, you're right. You're not my equal. I'm beneath you because I'm willing to put my needs above yours. And that's wrong. And repentance isn't just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is beginning to act in a way that is in conformity with the gospel. And that requires us to always expand the us. You look around the room and you see who's here every Sunday. Is your friend here? Are you looking around the room and noticing the people who you don't know? And are you reaching out to them and saying, you're one of us? And if they say, well, I've been here for 20 years. I'm, I've been here longer than you. Great. Over there is somebody we can go together. On Sunday morning, some of you get here early. And I'm glad because half of you get here late. <laughs> Do you know who gets here early besides you faithful few? Visitors, strangers. And you know the one thing they tend to do is they sit alone. Sometimes there are a couple over to the side or, or maybe a mother with some children. Have you ever thought about getting out of that pew that has your name on it because you've carved it in and gone over to them and asked them, would you come and sit with us? I notice you're new here. I know it's embarrassing and they say, well, I'm not new. I've been here 20 years. Okay, 
You have to swallow a little pride, a little humility. That's not a bad thing in a church this size. But you, do you come and sit with us? And if they say, no, we're okay here. Can we come and sit with you? Nobody in our church should ever sit alone. I think that communicates that you're here on your own. And worship is about community if it's not about anything else. Us worshiping our God together. Because quite frankly, you can do that alone at home. But because people have transversed to be here, we owe them the community that we are. And I'm telling you, you're a great community. I cannot speak any higher of you as a group of people. I just want everybody to experience you. Everybody to taste the talent that we have in our church, the hospitality that we have. You know, often people come and get a cup of coffee and come. I love that about us, how that's changed about us over the last 11 years that you bring a coffee into this holy place. I know you get the eyes. But one of the beauties is that somehow we think there's a coffee fairy that drops off that coffee and makes that happen. There's no coffee fairy. It requires somebody to get here about 7, 7.30 in the morning to make gallons and gallons of coffee that we think just appear here. If you want to be part of that, and and if you want me to tell you the Holy Spirit is moving you, just come see me. (laughs) But you can go talk to Lori Nelson because she organizes that. We should never run dry or have last week's coffee because no one was there to make it. I know that was a, a kind of a hilarious way to apply this beautiful text, but I want you to leave encouraged because you are an incredibly beautiful people that God has dropped a gospel bomb in and it has exploded. And we just don't know where all the pieces are going to go, but we know we're going where God intends because he is the Lord of EP.